What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. So, dress listeners, this week's two episodes are what we hope is an introduction to many of you as to what we think the future of fashion should probably look like. And fashion designer Mamie Prober is going to join us to speak about her incredible work that basically encompasses the history, the present, and the future of fashion. Yes, April. And this week's topic is a bit of a continuation from last week's for our regular listeners. Last week, Asha Barber joined us for a super enlightening conversation about the intersections of fashion, sustainability, human rights, and the health of our planet. April, you and Asha chatted about what we as consumers can do to adjust our buying habits to course correct, you know, the damage that fast fashion has really wreaked on our globe. Yeah, and this is exactly why I wanted to pair last week's episodes with this week's episodes with Mimi, because she is actually implementing all of these ideologies into her own personal practices and her company in really incredibly important ways. And her work is actually currently on view at the Metropolitan Museum of Arts exhibition in America, A Lexicon of Fashion, which is, of course, at the Costume Institute, and also in an exhibition at Cornell University, which is in upstate New York, because recently she's been the designer in residency there. So we have so much to learn from Mimi's slow ways of making garments. Mimi, a way overdue welcome to Dress. We are big fans. Mimi, thank you so much for joining us today. Like I was saying earlier, we have been meaning to have you on the show for a minute. And so because... So many things are happening for you right now. This seemed like the perfect time. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've been a fan of Dress Podcast for so long, and it is such an honor and pleasure to be here. And I'm excited to have our conversation. And thank you again for having me join. We're super excited too. So I'm going to ask you a question that we've been throwing out to people for a minute. And that is, what are some of your earliest memories of fashion? And also, 
beyond that, if you might share with our listeners a little bit about your path to becoming a designer. Sure. Some of my earliest memories are actually with my grandmother. Uh, My grandmother is from Morocco. She is French Moroccan and she just had the most incredible vintage style. She kept everything over the years. And I always was just in such awe of her wardrobe and just her eye. I learned a lot from her. And then my interests really in fashion came through that as well as collecting vintage, wanting to preserve that even just before I was a designer. And then when I went into middle school and high school, I fell in love with thrifting and I would always love like the hunt of finding that special piece. And then I would love to rework and recreate it. So we would do that with friends. And that's, I think, how it started. I went into fine arts first and then eventually found my way to New York City and fashion design. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think that for a lot of us who do what we do, who are like obsessed about the history of objects and like looking at them, my mom was a huge garage sailor. You know, I grew up in the Midwest originally. So I grew up being like toted around to all these garage sales, but also translated and going to like antique stores and stuff like that. And I was always so curious about how these things ended up there. What was the life that they had before? And I think that was like this innate curiosity in me, even like when you were saying, like as a middle schooler, as like a 10, 11, 12, I I wanted to know about the history of the thing. Yeah, no, I, I totally can relate to that. It's it's just really interesting, especially like going antiquing or going to estate sales or garage sales. You have these objects that people obviously once loved. Unfortunately, a lot of times it'll be like something that they inherited that they're now selling, but it meant something to someone. It meant something and it was cherished. And for that to potentially just get forgotten, like it's really important for the history of that to me. And also just finding out as much as you can about the story of these meaningful pieces. So they're preserved. Yeah. How did you end up becoming a fashion designer? I was originally uh, studying fine arts and I, again, I, I love fashion. Um, I wanted to incorporate my love for fine arts into a more wearable form. So I decided to apply to FIT. That was like my one and only goal. And I went to FIT and uh, became a fashion designer. <laughs> yeah. And we're both alumni of FIT. I did the master's program there, as our regular listeners will already know. Cass and I talk about it like all the time. But what was your experience like at FIT? And I'm just throwing this question out there because we actually have a lot of like younger listeners and people, sometimes I encounter them all the time coming into FIT being like, oh my gosh, I came here because of the show. So. Oh, I love that. So. FIT is an incredible school. For me, it was a great experience. I learned so much technical skills. I didn't sew before I went to FIT. I mean, I would hand sew, but I didn't like eating all of those things. So FIT really taught me all that I know about construction. Like I have, again, that appreciation for vintage clothing and studied all of these things. But as far as how to integrate that into my own collections, FIT really is incredible for technical skill set. And now when I graduated, they weren't doing so much in the whole sustainability realm because it really wasn't talked about at that time. But now they have so many incredible programs. They have projects for students. Even contests. 
Yeah, it's incredible how much they have transitioned into more of a cutting edge mindset. And that's where our industry is going to go. Yeah. Well, and the school itself has that DNA and its heritage because it was always founded to be that thing, uh, to be like the technical skill purveyor, like for industry. Like it really was founded for the industry to, to create skilled workers. I, I still work with mostly uh, the textile department at FIT. We've done sustainability grants with the president and textile creation. And even though the textile department wasn't something that I was involved in when I was in fashion design, though I do believe they really should interconnect if they haven't already, the textile department is also doing incredible work on informing and educating textile creation and thinking beyond just buying fabric. Future works. So when and how does sustainability become part of your design mission? So really, this was organic. Sustainability, the concept of it was always at the core of my signature philosophy and creation. So for me, again, going back to my love for history and objects, just that idea of preservation of techniques, um, of textiles that could easily be lost and forgotten. That's how I developed my signature philosophies. And I actually did so at FIT beginning in 2011, as we started working on our thesis garments, I started exploring antique textiles. I was actually really disheartened with the industry. I didn't really think that fashion had a place for my work necessarily. I transferred into museum studies, but I knew I would regret that. So I was like, what can I do that's meaningful? That isn't just me buying yards and yards of fabric. There was just so much waste at that time and none of these conversations were happening. So I was like, I love history. I love these antique textiles. And there's so much that could easily be discarded and forgotten. How can I integrate them into my clothing? So that's basically how it started with my thesis garments. I would use antique textiles from the 18th to early 20th centuries and uh, hand drape them into one of a kind pieces using our chain stitch embroidery threads, all of like the handwork and just preserving these small forgotten fragments and creating them more into a modern handcrafted heirloom that hopefully would be treasured and cherished and preserved. Yeah, I love the fact that you use this term heirloom. We don't have to get rid of our clothes that we buy. We don't have to. I hope, my ultimate hope <laughs> as a consumer, just being mindful of what we take into our homes, what we appreciate, what we want, and thinking about passing things on from generation to generation because we're just in such a throwaway society. I feel like it's every season, it's like, what new things can we add? What new things can we do? And for me, really, fashion or just the creation of my pieces is more like we do seasons, but it's building upon each season as you'll see, like we don't change the ideas each season. It's like adding a new painting to your collection. Mm -hmm. Don't throw away that previous piece that you had on your wall. You might add something next to it. So I like to think about fashion and clothing in that way. And hopefully people will understand that they don't need to consume so much and that they can really just keep things that are precious to them and continue to mend, preserve, wear, and, and carry that on and add on new things as your needs grow. Yeah. You bring up this word preservation, which I think is really interesting because you have four pillars to your brand philosophy. So what are those 
four pillars, and I'm hoping that we can talk about each of them individually. The four pillars that our brand is founded on is preservation, farm to fiber, ethical production, and community engagement. So with preservation, going back again, uh, we use specifically antique textiles and other fragments of antique pieces to create these one-of-a-kind modern heirlooms. And then we have also, basically, our core ethos is built on preservation. So it's like weaving the past into the present. So that idea also resonates with the custom textiles that we make. So not only do we use these antique textiles, we take these traditional techniques, these heritage heirloom techniques, as well as these antique textile fragments and recreate them working with artists and partners that are still doing this work. So for us, preservation is like twofold. It's preserving the actual antique textiles, but it is also working with these artisans that are still doing this wonderful work and preserving and supporting them because it is very likely if there is not support for them, that it will be lost and forgotten. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is so interesting in your work because in the way that you work in your process, you actually build a sort of narrative into your designs. So how important is that to you? Like how important is narrative and how important is the historical narrative in your work? So as far as that, like really it goes back again to that story. We always try to have that story, whether um, we know who made this textile or we're able to share the artisans that are creating this textile, how it was created from the farm to the fiber to the final garment, all of these different narratives, as you say, and these textile stories really are integral to our process and something that we share in everything that we do. As far as like history, again, sharing mostly the history of the textile and then incorporating it into a more modern idea or modern form that is able to be carried on rather than just recreating historical silhouettes or things like that. I love the moments when you use antique laces in your garments. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your preferred textiles to reuse or what are some of your favorites? Yeah, so I also love the antique laces. That is my heart and soul of our brand. So really, it's typically textiles and fragments from the 18th to early 20th centuries. Again, it's a preservation of these textile methods, these techniques, and Textiles that were more handcrafted during that era, like obviously once we hit like the 20th century, we go into like more mass production and things like that. So it's, again, the idea of preserving these handcrafted techniques, both in textile and construction, and then going back to the pieces that have a narrative and story, finding these forgotten textiles that do have this history and story and should be preserved and cherished, but aren't necessarily like a piece that can still live in its intended use, for example, in a museum collection. I think that's really important to say, because as the idea of reuse from vintage textiles becomes more popular, I think it's really important to uh, know what should remain as a whole for the museum, for museum collections, and what you know can be reimagined into another piece. So for us, it's really finding that special rare textile that has some damage or something that is no longer useful as its intended item, and then reworking it into a piece so it is not lost or discarded. Yeah, you use quilts 
in your work quite a lot. My mom was a quilter. So I grew up around like watching all of that handwork happen. So whether she was, maybe she was like machining things together, but all of the handwork always happened. And so it's just so incredible to remember that somebody actually stitched these things by hand. Somebody made that lace that you're talking about by hand. People don't realize that a lot of the time. 100%. People don't realize it. Even the simplest t-shirt like today that we buy, people don't realize that actual hands made these pieces. And that's something that I just try to emphasize is actual people are making these things and we just need to cherish that and understand the value in that. Mm -hmm. And work and labor and love and X, Y, and Z. Which leads me to my next question, because this whole initiative that you do within your body of work of Farm to Fiber is incredible. Hardly anyone does this. This is a ton of work on your end. So when we say Farm to Fiber, what do you mean by that? And why is it important to you? As we expanded our brand from the first inception of my thesis of working with these antique textiles, I started connecting with local farmers and mills to develop new custom textiles that still integrate the antique textiles, but in a way where we're also incorporating working with the fiber of these family-owned and sustainable small farms and mills. Basically, we've developed signature custom textiles with these farms who have beautiful fiber. They care very much for their animals. That is something that is really important to me. I think there's a big misconception of all wool is bad. Well, a lot of wool is bad when we're buying it commercially, but there are so many small farms and mills that care so deeply for their animals. They protect their animals. They're just fiber mills. Um, They're creating beautiful fibers. And it's my hope to create these custom textiles. We use the cutaways from our antique laces. So pieces that don't don't have the structure to be put into a garment. So whether it's the small clippings, it goes within our zero waste techniques and our zero waste philosophy. And basically, so we work with these multi-generational family-run farms and mills in New York State and throughout the United States. And our goal is really to support centralized regional fiber systems that integrate these sustainable practices. Some of the farms that we work with have wind and solar power. They're all family-run, multi-generational. They focus on organic and slow farming. And again, we use the most treasured ethical luxury fibers, which includes Paco Vicuña, uh, North American cashmere goats, Cormo sheep. And uh, basically that is our goal is to create these new textiles to support, again, these farmers uh, that are making beautiful, beautiful fiber and just reassessing what fiber even means to us. There's so many things locally happening as well as internationally. And it again, goes back to these artisans that are doing work that could easily just be lost. We could just lose it to commercial farms. Like supporting them is really most important to us. And just the fact that like you're using Vicuña and I don't, know if a lot of our listeners will know why that is extra special. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so actually, so Paco Vicuña is one of the most incredible American bread luxury fibers. So it's basically, if you're familiar with Vicuña, they're from South America. And then basically the Paco Vicuña is a an alpaca and Vicuña mix. And it is 
a few farmers basically bred as an accident in South America. And then they brought them over, over to the U.S. and have just worked so beautifully with these animals. They're so sweet on top of the fact that they have some of the rarest fibers in the world. So they have a very low micron count. And really, it is just as valuable and treasured as gold. It's really beautiful. I wish this wasn't just a, a discussion because I want to go through the audio <laughs> and everybody feel and touch it. It is just incredible. And the farm that I work with is in Missouri. And again, going back to her farm, she cares for these rare camelid breeds and it's a multi-generational family-run farm. She has her granddaughters participating and she has so many granddaughters. And if you look on my website or in any of our social media, you'll see her granddaughters are just like kissing the animals. They're just so lovely and so special. And yeah. Yeah. And when we say micron count, we mean like the fineness of the fiber. So the finer the fiber, the softer the textile. Exactly. Exactly. And I believe the micron counts can go from 12 to 13, which is really fine. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. And farmers are not your only collaborators. You also collaborate with specialty dye houses for some of your pieces. Can you speak maybe a little bit about some of them? I work only with natural color. So botanical and earth-based plant pigments are all you will find in my garments. Um, that is very important to me as synthetic color is polluting our waterways. But a plant-based pigment, it really is such a healing composition for both the creator and wearer. And for this really meditative, all organic, it's a beautiful process. And as one of the only, or maybe the only designers, brands to integrate natural color whole in all of our pieces, trying to change that narrative of the natural dye production process. So you can achieve so many beautiful natural colors. We do a lot of one-of-a-kind art prints. So each piece is unique individually and one-of-a-kind by nature. Botanical color has been something that I have been doing since the creation of my philosophy. I explored with flowers and did botanical processes. We work in production and partnership 
partnership with a woman-owned and employed natural dye house uh, called Green Matters Natural Dye Company, and they're near Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And they're good friends of ours. And as we have increased our uh, scalability of our pieces, it's wonderful to find similar partners that have the kind of similar mindset of what we're working with. And they only work also with plant-based pigments and natural colors. So we'll actually go there for sampling, develop the individual color palettes for each season, and then also go there for production and just have fun and, and be a part of the process. And what's really cool also about their company is that, and then also our our pieces, is that the only water is uh, rainwater from a cistern. So really everything is replenished back into the earth and all natural dye material is composted. So it's an entirely regenerative process and it really uh, fits within our ethos. Yeah. And, And this is the thing. This is the thing that always gets me. If we produce fashion for people and we don't overproduce, this whole thing is completely doable. There is no excuse for these big, fast fashion companies being like, oh, we can't do that. Yeah. There's a reason you can't do that. It's because you're overproducing. You're like killing our planet by doing this. If we produce for the people that need the things in the place where we live, it's completely a feasible proposition. Yeah, we only produce to order. So we do custom pieces as well as our production um, is really only based on what is ordered for the season. But like going back to that, to like fast fashion, it's just, it's my concern as sustainability or the idea of sustainability becomes this hot topic. It's like, where is this conversation going? Is it just marketing? Because it's not going to work. It's not going to work if it's just this small little area in a store that you say that you've used recycled fabrics from your previous collections, or I don't know, this cool new technique that I question really if it's ethical. (laughs) It is. It's re-educating, hopefully the consumer, which in turn will force the larger brands to slow down. Yeah. Because it all comes back to money. Like we can vote with our dollars. Absolutely. Mimi, thank you so much for this first glimpse into your work, the future of fashion, and all of these aspects that not only designers, but also us responsible consumers need to be considering right now. And as we mentioned earlier, April, this is part one of a two-part episode. So there is actually more with Mimi coming our way, listeners, on Thursday. Yes. And in our next episode, we're actually going to talk a little bit more in detail about some of her technical processes that she used and the types of materials that she employs in her work. And I'm just going to throw this out as a teaser. Like she goes around to salvage flowers from events and from florists. She uses avocados and even pomegranates as dye stuffs in her work. So you're not going to want to miss out on part two. Well, we will meet you there on Thursday, dress listeners. That does it for us today. May you consider how to make your wardrobe more sustainable next time you get dressed. If you'd like to reach out to us with episode suggestions or questions, you can find us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images for each week's episode. You can, of course, always email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who helps produce the show each week. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.